Well, hello, and thanks for listening in to our weekly teaching podcast here at City Church. We are a church in the Knoxville area that seeks to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you're in Knoxville or ever visiting Knoxville, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people here in the city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can drop us a line at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, good morning. Again, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of ours. There should be some under the seats on the end of each row. If you don't own a Bible at all, you're welcome to take that one home with you. That can be our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of the scriptures for yourself. Um, If you're using one of our Bibles, the page number should be up on the screen behind me. Um, If you weren't with us last Sunday, we began a brand new teaching series called Church is a Family. And this series is really all about how we relate to one another as followers of Jesus, how we live in relationship with one another. And so last week, we spent the bulk of the time unpacking how in the scriptures, in the Bible, the most common metaphor or word picture for what it means to live in relationship with other followers of Jesus is that of a family. A biological family. That's the primary picture given to us for how we should relate to one another. But we were very careful to specify that by that, when the Bible says we are to relate to one another as a family, it doesn't so much mean a modern American family as it means an ancient Mediterranean family. And those are actually two fairly different ideas at their core. An ancient Mediterranean person thought about family much differently from how most families today think about their relationship. It was a much stronger connection. It was a much more close-knit type of relationship. In fact, in many cases in ancient Mediterranean culture, your relationship with your other adult siblings was actually a closer relationship than between you and your spouse. That's how big of a deal family was in the culture that Jesus was in. And so when Jesus says that we are to operate like a family together, that was no small statement for him to make. That's the picture that we are given for what it looks like for us to live in relationship with one another. And so we spent the rest of our time last week just exploring what that looks like practically, how we live into this picture of a family that we're given in the scriptures. And all of that was very important for us to start with, just to even wrap our minds around what we're talking about in this series, just for us to know what it means when we use the word family to describe our relationships with one another. But at the same time, to start there, where we started last week, was sort of to skip a step. It was kind of to put the cart before the horse, so to speak. Because in order for us to become this type of family that God says we can and should be in the scriptures, in order for us to become that type of family, we need to understand what it is that makes us a family in the first place, right? So now that there's all these somewhat random people that I am called to live in deep, meaningful relationship with, one question we might have is, why should I do that, right? Why should I live in relationship with these other somewhat random people that I may or may not like, right? What should I do if if there's things about them that honestly I'm not a huge fan of? Am I still called to live in relationship with them? What What if there are weird things about them? Like, what if they're Alabama fans? 
for instance. Sorry, Laura Crawford, for that. What if, uh, what if the people I'm called to live in relationship with really like the type of music that Pitbull puts out? What if they're like the type of person who is glad that Adam Sandler is still making movies today? Like, what, what if there are legitimate differences? Those aren't legitimate differences, but what if there are legitimate differences between us? What if that person that I'm called to live in relationship with is the most socially awkward human being alive? What if I'm the most socially awkward human being alive and they're completely normal, right? On a more serious note, what if the people that we are called to be church family with are very, very different from us? What if they're different in more significant ways? What if they're in a very different stage of life than I am? What if they come from a different socioeconomic background from me? What if we think about politics or parenting or finances or any of number of things very differently from one another? Am I still called to live in relationship with them? And if so, how in the world do I do that when there are legitimate differences between us? In a nutshell, why should I put forth the effort it will take to be family with people when that is really difficult for me to do? Why should I still shoot for that? as a follower of Jesus. After all, this approach to relationships with one another, functioning like a family together as followers of Jesus is no small feat to pull off as a lot of us have discovered as we've endeavored to do it. Especially when the people that we are called to live in relationship with are quite different than we are. So today, I want us to talk about what it is exactly that motivates and enables these types of relationships, functioning as a family, even when it might take really hard work to do it. In order to do that, I want us to take a look at a passage from Ephesians chapter two. Now let me give you just a little bit of background on this passage we're about to read, just so you can understand its relevance for our conversation this morning. So the book of Ephesians is actually a letter written to a relatively new church in the ancient city of Ephesus, which is modern day Turkey. A guy named Paul, one of the leaders of the early church, he writes this letter to the Ephesian church in order to remind them of some things, to encourage them about some things, and also to address some issues that they were likely experiencing at the time as a church. Now, one of those issues was the relationship between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. That was one of the issues that they were experiencing within their church family at that particular time. Now, it's probably difficult for us to understand today how big of a deal that was back then. But just to sort of try to wrap our minds around it a little bit, uh, think with me for a second about all of the conflict and the suspicion in our country right now between people of different political persuasions. Just everything you read on the news, everything you see online, on social media. Think about all the frustration and the skepticism and the assumptions being made and the name calling that goes back and forth and the bickering that happens on a regular basis between those who are more politically conservative and those who are more politically liberal. Think about that for a second. Now multiply it by like a factor of five and add hundreds of more years of back history to it. I think once you do that, you're starting to get a glimpse at what the relationship felt like at times between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in Paul's day. 
Here were these two very different groups of people, people who thought about themselves very differently from one another, people who thought about the world around them very differently from one another, people who just approached life differently from one another. Very different groups of people, but God had seen it fit in his providence and his grace to knit them into one church family together. Now, as you might imagine, that was creating some issues in their midst. And so Paul writes specifically Ephesians chapter 2, the part of the letter that we're about to read, to help them navigate that issue that they were experiencing, to help them know how to approach it as followers of Jesus. So my point is that though it may not seem like this passage has much relevance to our culture today, just based on the words and the concepts that it brings up at times, Turns out it probably has lots to say about how we relate to people that are very different than us, right? Because that's the issue they were experiencing too. It might have been different on the surface, but a lot of the principles that Paul brings up still very much apply to how we relate to other people who are different than us today. So we're going to talk for a bit at the end about how this all applies in our cultural setting today. But first, let's just work our way through this passage Ephesians chapter chapter 2, it rained for the first time in a long time, and I'm so sleepy, you guys. Are you guys sleepy? All of a sudden, I got really sleepy when it rained. I'll work on that. All right. You might want to bring me a coffee on stage. That'd be great. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Now, does anybody want to take a guess at who he himself is referring to? Jesus, I think somebody said Jesus, right? Always a safe guess when you're in church, right? Uh, If anybody asks a question, you just shout out Jesus, and chances are in some roundabout way you'll be right. And even if not, people will be like, wow, that person's having a really powerful experience. That's great, good for them. (laughs) But he himself refers to Jesus, right? Jesus Christ himself. He himself is our peace. Now, when the Bible uses the word peace, and especially in the New Testament, when it uses the word peace, That word peace, you're the best, Kelsey. You're my hero. Everybody give it up for Kelsey. Mm. That's water, though. I don't know if... It's great. Thanks, Kelsey, for the water. Um, All right. So the word peace, like I was saying, the word peace in the Bible does not just refer to an absence of conflict or violence. It actually means much more than that. It's not just talking about, hey, let's put up with one another. It's actually talking about an ongoing love and acceptance of one another because of the gospel. So it's much deeper than, yeah, we try to get along when it's convenient for us. It's actually talking about we ongoingly love and embrace one another in friendship. Paul says that that is what Jesus came to generate between these two very different groups of people. That he came to deliver peace, love and acceptance between them. Now that's no small statement. But he's going to go on and elaborate on the details of how Jesus accomplishes that peace exactly. Keep reading with me in verse 14. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now note there, there apparently was hostility between these two people groups substantial differences with one another that resulted in a deep distrust and contempt for the other group of people. That's what was in place at the time when this is written. But Jesus addressed that, verse 15, 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So here, Paul is obviously referring to Jesus' death on the cross, and by implication, also his resurrection from the dead. Now, I think today it's easy for us to think of the cross mainly in terms of what it did for us individually and our individual relationship with God. We think of the cross often in terms of, okay, it forgave me of my sin and it set things right between me individually and the God of the universe. And that is absolutely true. That is beautifully true, in fact. That is core to the message of the gospel. But if you're paying attention to this passage, there also apparently is another dimension to what the cross accomplished and what Jesus accomplished through it. That on the cross, God was not only setting things right between us and God individually, but he was also setting things right between us and other people. Do you see that in the passage? In Paul's language, he was, quote, reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. That's the language that he uses. In other words, the cross provides a path for us to be made right, not just with God, but also with other people. Put another way, one thing that the cross accomplishes is justification. The theological concept of us being made right with God, being given a new identity with God through Jesus, being seen as righteous in God's sight because of the cross. Justification is also central to the message of the gospel. But according to the language in this passage, the cross not only justifies us, but also, if I can make up a word that I'm totally certain will not catch on, the cross also familyfies us. It makes us into a family. It reconciles us with one another. It takes very different people from very different backgrounds, and even those in outright hostility to one another, and it makes them one in Jesus. It makes them one. In the original language, it actually uses the phrase, one new humanity is what God creates through Jesus. Now, just in case anybody mishears that, that does not mean that the cross does away with the things that make us different and diverse from one another. It doesn't do away with the things that make us unique with all our different backgrounds and stories and all of that. God's purpose was not to create one big group of homogenous people that all look and act and speak just alike. That's not Paul's point at all. His point is that God takes all of these people with all of these beautiful differences and distinctions from one another, and he gives them the ability to live with this ongoing love and acceptance of one another in Jesus. That's what Jesus came to accomplish between us, that we would live together with acceptance and humility and love of one another despite our differences. So it's not uniformity, but it is unity around the cross of Jesus. That's what God accomplished for us. So uh, currently, our three-year-old Wit has a favorite book called God's Very Good Idea. Some of you parents may have this book. And it's a book essentially about how uh, God takes all these different people that look different and think different and talk different and all of that, and he brings them together as one family. Now, 
don't read too much into like my success as a parent getting him to like this book as his favorite book. He also likes a book called Big Dog, Little Dog, which is a book about nothing at all. So like you just read the whole book by hearing the title of that one. So don't read too much into that. I think Wit just likes some ideas in this book. And so he's a big fan of it. We read it every single night. And there's this line in it that it repeats a couple different times in this book, God's Very Good Idea. And it says, we are all different, but we are all also the same. We are all different, but we are all also the same. And the first few times, I think I just like skimmed right over it as like a throwaway line, but then it repeats it and again and again and again. And finally, I realized that the point it's trying to make in the book is not that all of us should be the same. Not that all of us should think the same or talk the same or act the same, but rather that because some things about us are the same, we can enjoy and appreciate the things that are different. So the point in the book is that we are all different and that we come from different backgrounds and we're in different stages of life and we think about things differently, but through Jesus, we're all also the same in that we are made in God's image, we've been broken by the sin that is everywhere around us and in our hearts, and we've been forgiven in Jesus and set right with God and one another. So the point that it makes is because those things about us are the same, other things can be different and we can enjoy and appreciate the things that are different because the things that matter are the same. The the thing at our core, what makes us us at our core is the same and so we can enjoy the beautiful distinctions between us. And I think that is such a beautifully simple way of explaining to kids what Paul is saying in this passage. That God takes very different people and through the cross of Jesus, he puts them at peace with one another. He makes them one new humanity in Jesus. Keep reading with me in verse 17. And he, again, that's Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, everybody say, so then, You guys are still awake, I love it. So then, in light of everything that Paul has just said about the nature of what God accomplished by sending Jesus to the cross, back in 19, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, meaning you're no longer estranged from God or from one another, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Members of the household of God. Now, That word household in that passage means exactly what it sounds like. It means the group of people that make up a home. It's talking about a family. The cross makes us a family. Because of what Jesus has done for them on the cross, these two very different groups of people in the Ephesian church are now family with one another. What a shift that is. Not just, hey guys, in light of what Jesus did for you, will you try to get along please? But rather, hey, you are now family together. You are members of the same family household together. Now look with me at this next verse, because Paul gives us one more picture for sort of understanding how all of this works, and then we'll unpack what it means for us today. Paul says that this new family God is creating is verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that's the earliest leaders of the church, but look at this part, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So let's figure out what Paul means here by this word picture, and then we'll talk about what all this means for us. He calls Jesus the cornerstone on which this whole church family is built together. 
Jesus is the cornerstone. A cornerstone back in the day was the first stone that you laid down when you were constructing any type of house or building or structure. So they did not have the same sophisticated building methods and tools that we have today. And so what you would do if you were getting ready to build some type of structure is you would go to a stonemason and you would get them to chisel out a cornerstone. And a cornerstone would have the exact right proportions and the exact right angles on it so that when you set down the cornerstone, everything else, every other stone that you laid around it was using that as a guide. So if the angles were right in the cornerstone, the whole building was right. But if the angles were wrong in the cornerstone, the whole building was wrong. So Paul uses that imagery and says that Jesus is the cornerstone of this church family that we're building together. Jesus himself is the cornerstone. So what he's saying, what he's implying is that Jesus is the basis and the guide for this new family. Jesus and his work on the cross are the basis for everything related to us being a church family together. He is what makes us a family. Without him, none of it makes much sense, right? Without him, there's not much reason that a whole bunch of people with a whole bunch of different backgrounds and in a whole different bunch of different stages of life would all function as one family together. But with Jesus, it all starts to make sense. Why these different people with different perspectives could become one family together. With Jesus as the cornerstone, we become one big, beautiful, diverse family. Jesus was able to bring these two very different groups of people in the church at Ephesus, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, with all of their history and hostility and infighting with one another and make them into a family. That's what Paul's trying to get across in Ephesians chapter 2. With that being said, Let's take one big step back and talk about what this might mean for us today. What are some implications for us in our culture today? I think there are probably all sorts of implications that we could talk about. I want to just give you one big takeaway for this morning about what this passage tells us about our relationships with one another. I want us to talk for a bit about the difference between chemistry and community. Chemistry and community. They're actually two different things, but I think often in our society, we confuse them with one another in some ways. Chemistry is the immediate feeling of connection that you get when you hang out with someone similar to you. So chemistry is when you meet somebody else, you meet a stranger, and as you get to know them, you think, I really like you, you remind me of me, right? That's what chemistry is. It's familiarity, it's friendship with another person, connection with another person based on similarities between you. Whether it's being in the same stage of life or having similar interests to one another, being in the same line of work as them, it could be any number of different things, but chemistry is a connection based on similarities. So for me personally, I have a ton of chemistry with other pastors and church planters here in Knoxville. I can get together with them and we could probably talk for hours about stuff because there's just a lot in common. We're similar in that we're in the same line of work. We're even similar in the the types of churches that we're trying to lead our churches to become. So uh, Dominique Lee, who's out at Hope Fellowship, who you guys will actually get to hear from here next Sunday. 
He is one of these friends that I have, one of these other pastors and church planners that I'm in relationship with. Jason Hayes out at Shoreline Church. Aaron Loy is planting a church in South Knoxville. There's all these people, all these other pastors and church leaders in our city that I have a natural chemistry with. We have tons in common. We could get lunch and we could sit there for hours and talk about all the things that we have in common, whether it's in things that we're encountering in our job, whether it's books that we're reading, theology, life with our families, all of that. There's just tons that we have in common. We have a lot of chemistry. But that being said, as beneficial as those relationships are, I would not consider those guys to be my community. I wouldn't use that word to describe those relationships. I don't see them often enough for them to be my community. They don't know enough about me. They don't see me on a regular enough basis to know the things that I'm struggling with on a regular basis. They don't know the deepest parts of me like other people do. They don't help me grow, at least not on a daily basis, in my discipleship to Jesus. We have chemistry, but we do not have community. Does that make sense so far? But that being said, I do have community with a guy named Michael in my life group. There's a guy in my life group named Michael. We've known each other for what, six months? A little bit more? So now on the surface, you would not expect a guy like me and a guy like Michael to have much chemistry with one another. I am 32. Michael is an age that he just prefers I describe as somewhere north of 50. Uh, I am an introvert. He clapped at that. That was great. Uh, I... (laughs) You got me, man. Uh, I am an introvert. Michael is very much an extrovert. If you've met Michael, you have found out that he is an extrovert within the first few minutes that you've known him. Um, I am married. He is single. When it comes to music, uh, I tend to like like acoustic, really chill, singer-songwriter type of stuff. I like the type of music that makes you feel like you're perpetually on a road trip through the mountains, right? That's the kind of music I like. Michael uh, blasts techno dance pop everywhere he goes as loud as he can in his car. So even when it comes to music, there's just a lot of differences between me and Michael. There's a lot of things that we do not have in common. I could probably go on, and he could too, about all the things that we see differently and think about differently from one another. So if you were just pairing up two people to be in a friendship, you probably would not pick me and Michael, unless you were like doing casting for like an odd couple buddy comedy movie or something, right? Like you, you probably would not pair us up because we don't have much inherent chemistry, at least not on the surface. But that being said, I'll tell you this, I have some of the most regular, most meaningful community with Michael. He and I have a lot in common when it comes to the things of God. I have regular lunches with Michael where we challenge one another to grow in our discipleship to Jesus, where we say things that maybe the other person didn't want to hear, but they need to hear. We help one another grow on a regular basis. Michael knows some things about me that not many other people know. I have community with Michael, even though we don't have much inherent chemistry. So there's a difference between chemistry and community. They're not the same thing. Now, they're both good things to desire. I hope you have both of them. I hope you have people that you have chemistry with and people you have community with. I hope you have people that you click with very naturally and you have people that you hang out with despite not clicking with them very naturally. 
They're both good things, but they're not the same thing. And perhaps most importantly, they are not requirements for one another. For instance, you can have plenty of chemistry with people and still not have much community with them. You can have people that you enjoy being around on a regular basis but don't necessarily know you all that well, at least not in the things that matter. And you can have community with people that you have virtually no chemistry with, like me and Michael. You can have rich, meaningful, deep friendships with people that you don't naturally click with at all on the surface. In fact, as I think through over my life and over my discipleship to Jesus, some of the people that God has used to grow me the most in regards to my discipleship to Jesus have been people that I did not have much in common with. Because it challenged me to think outside of my immediate perspective. Some of the people that the Holy Spirit uses the most are often the people that you are most unlike. Now, the dream is to be able to combine the two, right? The dream is to be in community with people that you also have chemistry with. That's probably what we would all prefer. But at the same time, that's not always the way that God orchestrates it, is it? Sometimes he calls us to community with people that we have very little chemistry with. So all of that said, here are two concerns that I have for our church family as a whole. Take them or leave them. These are concerns that I have for our church, just for us to consider this morning. One concern I have is that some of us would think we have genuine community when really all we have is chemistry. That some of us would think, man, I know these people really well, but really all it is is that we have a ton of things in common and so it's easy for us to hang out. The other concern that I have is that some of us would continually run from community in the name of finding more chemistry. The other concern I have is that we would ignore the community that God has put around us just in the name of finding more people that are a little bit easier to talk to. And again, I want to be very clear. It is not wrong to want chemistry, okay? I hope you have people that you have chemistry with. I hope you find people that you have chemistry with. But don't confuse that with community. They are often not the same thing. And here's why I have those two concerns, and here's why I care enough to bring it up with us this morning. If you're paying attention to what Ephesians 2 just got done telling us, it's that the building block, the foundational cornerstone of genuine community is actually not the chemistry that we have with other people. It's the work of Jesus on the cross. That's what makes us a family. Not similarities in personality, not similarities in life stage, not similarities in marital status or anything else. What makes us a family is the cross of Jesus. So when we say things like, oh, I can't be in community with them, they're very different from me, I think that flat out ignores the reconciling work of the gospel. Because in Ephesians 2, what God saw fit to do is to take these two very different groups of people people that probably had less in common than we do with anybody in our life groups here at City Church, and he knit them together into one church family. In the gospel, God provided the basis for these two 
polar opposite groups of people. I mean, if you're looking for a case study in people who are different than one another, this is it, right? Jewish and Gentile Christians, that's about as different as two groups of people can be, at least in this culture. They could not be more different, but they had one very important thing in common, and that's the good news of Jesus. They had a belief in the reconciling work of Jesus on the cross, and that's what made them a family. Listen, if Jesus could do that for Jews and Gentiles, if he could do it for two groups of people with all that history, all of that bad blood between them, surely he can do that for us today in our society. Surely he can accomplish that. Surely he can do that between married people and unmarried people. Surely he can do that between college students and empty nesters. Surely he can do that between black Christians and white Christians. Surely he is able to do this in our midst if he did this in Ephesians chapter two. So if you are a follower of Jesus here today, I would just encourage you to fight the urge to think that the goal of life is to find more people like you to hang out with. I'm not saying don't look for people like you. I'm just saying fight the urge to think that those are the only people you can have community with. Because I think that short circuits, I think that downplays the reality of what Jesus accomplished for us. Instead, as followers of Jesus, I think we are called to intentionally look for ways that the gospel makes us one with those around us, and especially with those who are very different than we are. So the question might be, how do we do that practically? That's sort of 30,000 feet, how we think about things. Let's talk a little bit about how we work towards this at a hands level in our church family. How do we actually learn to operate this way, even with people that are very different than us? I've got two things that I think are worth considering this morning, and really they're just sort of two sides of the same coin. But first, I think we should confess sins, not just circumstances, Confess sins, not just circumstances. Let me explain what I mean by that. Something I have noticed about myself is that when I'm talking with some of the guys from my life group, even when I am attempting to be really honest about what's going on in my life and about elements of my relationship to Jesus, usually I end up talking more about the circumstances of my life than I talk about what I'm struggling with in those circumstances. Usually, when people ask me the question, how are you doing, I, I usually answer it as if they would have asked, what are you doing, right? I usually just list out for them the situations in my life. So I'll respond, for instance, by talking about things happening in my life, about specific ways that life with two kids is stressful, right? I'll talk some about that, or I'll talk about how Anna and I are experiencing conflict in some aspect of our marriage, or I'll talk about how life as a pastor, working as a pastor, can be somewhat discouraging at times. I'll usually talk about things like that, and there's nothing wrong with me talking about those things with my life group. In fact, I hope that all of us bring things like that up with our life groups. But the thing is, I haven't really confessed anything yet, right? All I've done so far is just talked about the circumstances in my life that are not going the way that I want them to. That's not actually confession. That's just discussing the details of our life with people. And by doing that, by, by talking that way with them, what I've just inadvertently communicated is that 
people who are not in my stage of life probably can't identify with what I'm experiencing. What I've just inadvertently communicated is that uh, if, if you are not a parent of at least two kids, you probably can't understand what I'm dealing with right now. Or uh, if you aren't currently experiencing conflict in your marriage, if your marriage is going great, you probably can't identify with us. Or if you're, if you're not married at all, you probably can't understand what we're going through. Or if you don't specifically work as a pastor, you probably can't understand the realities of my job on a regular basis. I've accidentally just communicated that to understand what I'm going through, you have to be in the same stage of life as I am. Because I've confessed circumstances, not so much sins. But track with me here. What if I talked about all those same things with my life group, but I actually spent some time unpacking what's behind all of them? If I actually spent some time talking about what I feel like God is teaching me or showing me or exposing in me through those circumstances as a result? So what if instead of just saying, hey, life with two kids is stressful, I instead said, hey, life with two kids is stressful, and I think what God is using that to expose in me is that I don't do a good job of prioritizing my time, is that I just say yes to everything, and at the end of the day, I'm out of energy to do the things that matter. What if I talked about it from that angle? I'm still talking about what's happening in my life, but I'm I'm doing it with an awareness of who God is. I'm doing it with an awareness of God is always teaching. God is always speaking if we're willing to listen. What if instead of just saying, hey, Anna and I are experiencing conflict in X, Y, and Z, what if instead I said, hey, we're experiencing conflict with one another, and I think the reason for that conflict a lot of the times is that I am a very impatient and self-righteous person. And I always assume that she's wrong, and I always assume that I'm right. And then I'm just waiting for her to see the light of day, right? I think that's what God is trying to expose in me through this conflict that we're having with one another. What if instead of just saying, hey, life as a pastor is discouraging, what if I said, hey, right now my job is frustrating and discouraging, and I think God is using that to help me see that I cannot control what people in our church do or don't do? that I can't actually change people myself. All I can do is be faithful and ask that the Holy Spirit would change them. I think God's using this discouragement in my job to show me that. If I confess things like that, if I talk about what's going on behind just the circumstances in my life that are not going well, all of a sudden it invites other people into the conversation instead of boxing them out. It's easier to see how the things I'm struggling with are also things that other people might be struggling with as followers of Jesus. And yes, doing it that way requires a little more self-awareness, for sure. It requires thinking about things a little more often. It involves regularly asking, Holy Spirit, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me through this? But it taps into what we have in common with others. Namely, that we are all followers of Jesus who are affected by the brokenness of the world and are trying to learn what Jesus' life, death, and resurrection might mean practically for us. And when we tap into that, it actually opens up the conversation when we confess sins and not just circumstances. The second, and like I said, this is really just the flip side of the same thing. Second is look for bridges, not barriers. 
Look for bridges, not barriers. I made them start with the same letter so you know it's true, right? Look for bridges with one another, not barriers. So there are going to come times when you maybe are not talking about things going on with your life, but somebody else in your life, another follower of Jesus, another person in your life group is talking about things going on in their life. And they are sometimes not going to be able to speak about it in the helpful ways that maybe you wish they would. Maybe they do confess just circumstances. And your tendency in that moment, I think our human tendency in those moments, is to immediately throw up barriers and go, well, I don't know what that feels like. I've never experienced that before. And all of a sudden, we're out of the conversation because we're assuming that they're just too different from us to have any type of dialogue about it. It's easier to throw up barriers. And so in those moments, what it might be is that they just need your help. They need you to meet them halfway in the process. They might need you to help show them or help them see what God is teaching them or exposing in them. They might need you to dialogue with them so that they can see it more clearly. And that's what it looks like to look for bridges. So let's say in your life group, Um, there is someone who's a stay-at-home mom. And what she confesses is that she's just really exhausted from having the kids need her at all times throughout the day. And she's confessing that she's been very quick to anger, that she's been very, very quick to blow up on her kids for seemingly no reason, and she needs prayer in that. Now, if you're in that life group and you are not a parent, or you are not a stay-at-home parent, it might be easy for you to go, well, I've never been in that situation before. I don't really know what that feels like. I don't really think I have anything to offer. But if you think about it for just a little bit longer, chances are you have been angry before, right? You, You have, for seemingly no reason, blown up on somebody at your job or in your life or in your neighborhood or whatever it is. Chances are you do know something similar, even if you don't know even if you don't have experience with that exact situation. So instead, you could look for a bridge, a way to go, man, I've been in a similar spot before and here's what God taught me through that or here's what God reminded me of in those moments. Let me offer this to you and pray that it would be helpful to you. Another situation, let's say you're in life group with a college student and this college student is just confessing that uh, lately it has been really hard for them to just see all of their friends in college go out and party every single weekend and to want aspects of that themselves but know that that's not what they're called to as followers of Jesus. And they're just confessing that it's so hard to every night just pull up the Insta stories of everybody having a blast and them not being able to experience that. Let's say they confess that. Now it'd be easy if you're not a college student and especially if you've been out of college for five, 10, 15 years, it would be easy for you to go, man, I don't know what that feels like. None of my friends have partied in like 15 years. I have no idea what that would feel like. But listen, chances are you, you do know what it feels like to resist something that other people are doing as a follower of Jesus. Chances are you do know what it feels like to see your friends go out and spend massive amounts of money on things that they don't need and know that as a follower of Jesus, you're not called to spend your money that way. You probably do know 
uh, what it feels like to have friends that get together and gossip about other people on a regular basis and to see that and go, man, I used to do that and I'm even drawn towards that in ways, but I know that's not what I'm called to as a follower of Jesus. Chances are you do know what it's like to resist various types of sin that you see other people participating in. So instead of throwing up a barrier and going, man, I've never been in that situation. I can't even imagine what that would feel like. I'm just going to sit this one out. You could lean in and go, hey, I, I actually have experienced elements of that before, and here's what God taught me through that. Here's how I found God to be faithful and enduring and helpful, and here's how I found the gospel to be especially true in this particular area. Look for bridges, not barriers. It's so easy for us to see the differences between us and other people first. For us to immediately think, man, I just, that's a completely different world to me. I can't identify at all, and maybe I should just find a different community because I, I don't even know what these people are talking about. Instead, what if we chose to think about it as, hey, yeah, we're all different, but we're all also the same. We're the same in that we're made in the image of God. We've been reconciled to God through the brokenness of the world, that we've been reconciled to Jesus through the cross, and that we are now learning what it looks like to live faithfully as followers of Jesus on an ongoing basis. If those things are the same, we can work through even the things that are very, very different. And so what I want for us as a church family is that we would we would embody this posture that Ephesians 2 talks about. That, that through Jesus being the cornerstone, by him being the basis and the guide for how we approach relationships with one another, we would become this type of church family that appreciates the differences but lives alongside one another based on the similarities, based on the good news of Jesus. I don't know if you ever thought about it this way. But it would be hard to describe a relationship with more differences than the relationship between a holy God and sinful human beings. I don't know of a relationship that has more functional differences than that one. And what God chose to do is come to earth as the person Jesus, climb up on the cross, be crucified in order to reconcile those very different people to God the Father. That's the message of the gospel. At the very core of the gospel is God loving people that he did not have very much in common with. And if that's the message of the gospel, what does it look like for us to embody that message in our relationships with one another? And if we do, we'll just end with these last two verses from our passage. As we do that, as we rely on the good news of Jesus to make us family with one another, Here's what Paul says will happen in verses 21 and 22. This, this temple, this church family, this cornerstone that it's all built on, he says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this building that we are building together, this household, this family that we're working on together. Paul says 
that it functions as a holy temple. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that language in the Bible, a temple in the language of the Old Testament was where people went to encounter God, is where people went to encounter the very presence of God himself. But Paul says here in the New Testament that when we build a church family on the foundation of the good news of Jesus, we become the temple. We are now the temple. Followers of Jesus, the church family that we make up, we are now the temple where God dwells. So if we want the people in Knoxville and our world to experience the presence of God, if we want them to encounter who God is, it starts with the good news of Jesus transforming us, him transforming and informing the relationships that we have with one another, and letting him make us into a family, a household that is built on the cornerstone of Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross. That's what we're after. Let me pray for us. Thanks for listening. As many of you guys know, we are in the process of renovating and moving into a historic church building located on the Tennessee River right in the heart of Knoxville. If you regularly benefit from this podcast, we would love to extend the invite to you to consider giving to those renovations. If you're interested in finding out more, head to citychurchknox.com slash buildings.